This is the Betting on Zero podcast, inspired by the award-winning 2016 financial documentary Betting on Zero, with hosts Burke Koontz and John Fickthorn. And I'm sorry if you hear the beeps in the background. There's a bit of construction crew here, and I think their goal is uh-huh. to drive in reverse at all times. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a metaphor here for short selling. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. So, the so betting we, on, welcome to the betting on zero or now maybe the betting on a thousand betting on infinite <laughs> bet, betting on uh, infinite betting on. Uh, yes, exactly. Betting on the Mongolian horde. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this is the betting on zero podcast. And uh, this is Perkins and John Fickthorn. And we're joined by our special guest today, Kyle Bass of Heyman Capital. Welcome. Welcome. Glad welcome, to be, Kyle. Glad to be here, guys. We're very glad you could be here. It's uh, as as uh, some of our listeners certainly know, um, Mr. Bass has been a um, uh, a successful investor for decades now, and uh, and with everything going on in the market today, there'll be no shortage of things to talk about. But uh, I know the the subject on everyone's mind is uh, is the the, the full on uh, uh, assault on short selling. Um, uh, is, is this thing in GameStop continues to metastasize and uh, morph into something different every second? And, and anyway, I, I, I'd be curious to hear everyone's perspective. But uh, but this is a this is a very fortuitous booking because there's not the <laughs> short selling is perhaps hasn't been this high in the zeitgeist and uh, well maybe since betting on zero <laughs> and probably higher, much higher this time. <laughs> <Right>. I'm sure. <laughs> right, and probably hasn't caused any single fund manager more pain since Bill Ackman until, <laughs> right. until right. now. That's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, so maybe Melvin's gonna have a great comeback also, who knows, but uh, yeah, right. this, is, this is crazy. I mean, Kyle, uh, Kyle and I met a long time ago uh, you know, Kyle is maybe not responsible for me becoming a short seller, but probably responsible for me thinking it was a good idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my, my my first day on the job at, uh, at Quillcap, I get a call from Kyle. I am not even on the job. Let's just be real. I'm actually still working at a different fund. <laughs> and it's and I'm shutting that fund down. And Kyle calls Parker, my boss at the uh-huh. time, and he's a new account. And Parker doesn't want to take a call. Oh, hold on, John. You cut out. You cut you out. Cut, oh, we're going to the backup, backup audio here. <laughs> you there? Not quite. How about now? There you go. My back. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. I'm, I'm having, I've been on the phone so long today that my batteries are dead, both of them. So, so at any rate, you need a Tesla battery. Oh, you beat me to it. <laughs> you beat me to it. Or wireless charging from right. one of those magical wireless charging companies. Right. So uh, Parker pushes Kyle's call, call on to me, at which point Kyle tells me, what do you tell me, Kyle? What's the short story? So it, the one that we met on was um, there was a company based in New Mexico. It was called Solvex Minerals. And it was run by a guy named John Rendell. And um, uh, Solvex was basically had, had a claim that they could turn elemental metals, the uh, iron, um, tin. No, no, no. Your first one was the gold reserve in Nevada. That's where you got me. 33 to zero. Well, Solvex was first. It was before it was before it was before uh, Del Gratia. Uh-huh. No, Del the first call you gave me, we worked on Solvex for years, but the first call was, was Del Gratia. Okay. 
All right, well, and he calls me up and he's like, you've got to short this. And I'm like 23 years old. And I'm like, dude, I, I don't even work at this place yet. Like, what do you mean I got to short it? He's like, I don't care. Just put in your PA. You just have to short it. Because he, the story is a good one. So uh, the very first hedge fund conference ever happened to be in 1995 in Bermuda. It was called Managed Account Reports, MAR, Hedge Fund Conference, 1995. Mm -hmm. Our hedge. uh, I had just gotten a job at Bear Stearns, and um, I had about $4,000 in the bank, and that was the most money I've ever had in my bank account in my life at the time. And I took about $3,500 of it and bought a plane ticket and a hotel room for three nights in Bermuda, uh, and I went to this conference. And... Uh, the very first thing I saw when I walked in was all of these service providers. There were prime brokers that had little booths set up in the hallway. Right. Uh, and it was everybody serving the financial services industry. And right at the end of the hall, before you turned into the conference room, was a stock chart. And it said Delgration Mining, and it had a stock chart that looked like Y equals MX plus B. Mm-hmm. It was perfect. And uh, there was a guy named uh, Kyle Washington, who was the son of billionaire Dennis Washington, and he was their IR guy. And he was, he was there at the conference to promote his company and to get hedge funds, uh, these new formed pools of capital, uh, to buy his stock. And so he told me the story about um, how large the deposit was. It was, uh, uh, Delgratia was based in Canada, and yet their mine was actually, uh, I think it was based in Canada, their mine was actually in Southern Nevada. Uh, and they had this huge reserve and this major assay. And if you just did the math, the company was worth $500 million in the market at that time, which back then was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and gold was at like 150. Yeah, <laughs> right? gold, gold was a little lower, but it was worth, you know, uh, it, it had gone from almost zero to 500 million. And um, um, if you just did, did all the math on how much gold they had and how much he thought they could mine per year, you know, he was saying this thing can be worth, you know, four or five billion dollars. It was a 10 timer from here. So I went, I went back to my office, very excited that I had met this young man and started to do the work. And I um, said, well, how am I going to get my arms around this? So I called the Nevada Mining Commissioner just to find out how big this mine was in relation to all the other mines in, in Nevada. And I know it's a long story, but it's, it's worth it. Um, and I said, well, Mr. Nevada Mining Commissioner, I'm calling to, to ask you about Del Gracia's, you know, mining find of 2 million plus ounces of gold in Southern Nevada. He goes, Del who? <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, well, they're probably, they're probably doing business as some other, you know, they probably have an LLC or, or some other company that they do business with in Nevada. So I said, you know, the company that found 2 million ounces in Southern Nevada. And this guy says, son, the biggest mine in Nevada's history is the bullfrog mine. And we, that was found in the early 1960s. And since that day to today, to 1995 at the time, they had mined a little less than 2 million ounces of gold. And he said, if anyone has found 2 million ounces of gold in Nevada, I'd know about it. <laughs> and I said, right? okay, that is both frightening and interesting at the same time. <laughs> and uh, so it, it literally turns out that these guys were making it up that we investigated management and management had made it up a couple of other times and been caught in the bank by the Vancouver's uh, security regulators, which of course is like uh, 
the worst securities regulation universe in the in the world, uh -huh. or one of them was was the Canadian shysters. And um, I called John and uh, Parker and and said, "This one's going to be easy." <laughs> This is this is back when short selling was fun. Right. And I was like, I didn't know what I was doing. I thought he goes, well, I don't care if you can short it in the fund, short it in your PA. So I thought, OK, I haven't done this before. Short a thousand shares at thirty two dollars. I think it was the next day or that afternoon. CNBC guys on TV proceeds to tell this story. Stock goes thirty two sixteen halted. <laughs> Halt for two weeks and never reopened. <laughs> no, no, no. It opened again, went to 18 and then straight to one. Oh, I don't so, know. So it, it reopened very briefly, like for for less than a day. And it was basically 32 to zero. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> this is so easy. I can't wait to be a right. short seller. This is going to be right. so fun. <laughs> these these are not the stories that you hear about short sellers these days. No. That's right. That now there's so much money in the market that um, you know that would have gone from 32 to 31, and then and then it'd be 50 because people just like to know that that uh, there's too much short out there and that you have to buy it back. Right. Look look how look how much people are shorted. Who cares that it's worth nothing? It must be worth a million. <laughs> right. Let's let's jam these guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. And it's, it's amazing. You know, I got so many questions from my wife today and my wife does not want to hear or discuss what I do in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Like it is basically not a conversation we discuss. And here I am getting texts this morning going, uh, let's see. I'm hearing uh, what were her questions? I don't do the market. Oh, wait, no, no hold on. <laughs> I got What's a your take on GameStop? Well, yeah. Not because I care, but because I've been asked 20,000 times. As I said, I tried to tell you this morning, just tell me so I can tell everybody, why didn't you own it? We could have made a lot of money. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going really well. I said, why didn't you own it? She wrote, because I don't do the market. You do. Uh, and then I got, so who's guilty? The hedge fund or the app? Uh, Robin Hood. That's, mm -hmm. that's the question. thought, huh, this is what people, and I was kind of like guilty of what? I was literally trying to figure out what the question, and the real frustration people have is this is the strangest thing. This is a battle between the little guy and the big guy in the minds of the population. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that seems preposterous. I'm like, what did they win? Who has lost? And yeah. what do they have once they've won? Right. If they win, great. Melvin's out and the short sellers all cover. This is, you know, thinking two steps ahead. But then they end up owning a stock that's a hundred times right. overvalued. Right. Right. This is this is a you haven't won. Everybody's right. a loser. Right. You've right. created a situation of of mass loss. Right. You're like a kamikaze pilot. <laughs> right. I mean, these uh, these nihilists that are kind of taking over in this market. Um, the, 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 they, they really are just raging against the machine that has existed as machine of capital markets uh, since the beginning of the United States. And I think that, look, what's going on here is um, what's fascinating about this particular example is this is really, really bad for the, for the long run trust in the market, both long and short. Having assets that can move more than 10% a day is really bad. Now, if there's a 
one-time event where there's news or an acquisition, like right. those things can go up 100%. That, that's not what this is. There's no news here. That's right. So in this case, you take a almost bankrupt retailer uh, that could still go bankrupt and um, take it from you know, $5 in the, you know, really in the beginning to 18 and then to 500 and having it move hundreds of percent in a day. Every uh, day, right? What it did is, is it wiped out the short sellers in the beginning uh, because it went from 20 to 500 and somewhere in there, you get tired of losing five or six or seven or eight or nine times your money and, uh, or you can't lose anymore. <laughs> you get real tired of it because you're broke. You <laughs> all your money. Uh, I mean, Right, if you're at a five percent short position, you got carried out really fast. You lost everything. Um, and then the funny thing is, is what happened yesterday. You think about this for a second. You had, and yesterday, today's Friday, so Thursday was the day uh, it hit five hundred, and it also traded one hundred and twenty a few hours later. Um, while we were on the phone talking, in fact, we were <laughs> exactly right. But it's interesting. It wiped out the short sellers. And then it wiped out many of the longs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and almost the brokers and the custodians. Well, I mean, right? look, one, one could argue that, that Robinhood went to negative equity. And let's just do some math. Like 92 million shares traded hands two days ago at an average price of like 335 bucks, right? So um, the moment the stock drops below, call it, I don't know, somewhere around 165. Um, so... If, if the 92 million shares that were bought on average at 335 um, trade down 50% and you were using reg T margin, mm -hmm. you lost all your money, right? You're, if you were if you were 50% using that 50% margin. And anything that you lost after that was the brokerage firm on the hook. So when you right. saw it drop to 200, then like one, 180, one, or 190, 180, then it just started gapping and not trading. Uh, all the way down to 120 or 110. Um, that's why Robinhood had to tap its credit line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that, and they were forcing people out. And you saw guys with exit prices posted on Reddit of like below where I saw trade, right? Like 140 and 130 and something right. like that. Because they were just blowing people out. Because well, they were And in many of those cases, it, there was no bid. I mean, I watched it at, at that moment in time. All of those, all those for sale orders happened. And, and so... Reddit, when you think about this, 92 million shares at 335, every $10 from there is a billion dollars. Every $100 from there is $10 billion. <laughs> so we're talking about $20 billion evaporating for a short period of time yesterday. Right. Uh, and that is a lot of money. And that's a lot of money to even establish securities firms, much less, you know, the millennials uh, mm -hmm. Robinhood firm. So when Robinhood started to restrict trading, it wasn't because they thought it was a good idea to help the Robinhooders save themselves from bankrupt companies. This was Robinhood trying to save itself. Yes. I was trying to explain this to my, I've got a 17 year old who was complaining about uh, the paternalism, you know, showed by Robinhood and how uh, it was just another example of the entrenched interest. And, and, and uh, I said, well, you know, actually the opposite of that, he was just thinking that they were, um, the, you know, intervening in the capital markets in a way that was unfavorable to them. And, uh, and yeah, but we had to explain though, they're, they're out at the end of the day, they've got to take care of, of themselves. There's no way they can survive this tsunami of, of capital uh, sloshing around in either direction. Well, they can't survive the losses. Right. <laughs> right? No, but that's my point. Like it's right. just one of the 13 names that went crazy, uh, you know, two days ago, 
but again, this is just one example where, where we could see $20 billion evaporating in like two hours. And, you know, if you're running a new securities firm, arguably Vlad and his uh, team of, of Robin Hooders um, probably don't have the proper um, uh, belt suspenders and safety <laughs> mechanisms put on for all of those accounts at all of those times. And they just saw the time bomb building and right, a 50% move in a security in one day will wipe out many of your accounts. And we saw a 75% move in two hours, and, right? You know, it, it's insane. And, and it's, although I think Robinhood is probably a little, I don't wanna say fly by night, but belt and suspenders are probably lacking. Who could have built belt and suspenders for this type of volatility? It's not inside of anybody's model at some level, right? And, and it's not just at the broker-dealer level. It's across the financial system level. And this is, this is where you get, it gets kind of interesting, right? I, I spent a long time trying to put together a, a hedge fund manager portfolio. And, you know, it incorporated first loss and other things. And those models have been incorporated by everybody, whether it's Millennium, Ballyazny, 0.72, Lighthouse Capital. I mean, take your pick. There's tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of capital, not to mention it's then levered up five plus times. And so for every dollar you give these guys, right, they're, they're four long, four short, something like that. And, but it's market neutral, it's style neutral, everything's neutral. So they have zero net exposure. That's why you can pile so much leverage on it. Well, that's all well and good until one of your retailers, your long, your long pick a retailer and your short GameStop and GameStop goes up five, 10, 20 X. Well, all of a sudden, you know, not only do you have to cover the short, you've got to sell the long. You also right. now have less capital. So you've got to reduce the gross just to be the same amount of leverage. And then your model goes, oh shit, my model's wrong. And you got to take your leverage down. And so, you know, what, you, what you're seeing today, and I don't know when it stops or what it looks like when it stops is, you know, Morgan Stanley came out and said, Tuesday was the biggest degrossing day ever for hedge funds inside their prime brokerage. And if it was for Morgan Stanley, it is for Goldman Sachs. And, and well, the Goldman actually said it this morning. I had a call with their head of trading early, earlier this morning, and he said the same thing. Right. Interesting. And so it's when, like, it does this model even work? And it kind of comes down to what are the, what do we, have we lost faith in the capital markets? I mean, this shouldn't be possible, right? I'm sure, like, I remember the classic line in 2008 when one of the, uh, algo guys said you know th this move was statistically impossible and you're like okay well <laughs> thanks thanks for that i'm sure this one was also so now we'll have two statistically impossible moves in 10 years that's, that's right i mean it will affect the psyches of of hedging uh and market neutrality uh for years to come uh and hmm. it's going to affect people like john and i who used to at some point in times have very large portions of our portfolio, um, you know, short frauds that we found. And, and you know, those, those frauds are, are, there's a line of them long and distinguished uh, from 1995 to 2020. And um, I'm not so sure that, that that's going to happen any longer. That what's going to happen any longer, that, that people but will be able to substantially. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying, you, you know, you wouldn't even take a 5% short position today. A 5% short position, you know, if it moves up 10X in, in, in a week, you lose half your money. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you could never do that anymore. Right, 
Right. What's well, interesting? My largest, about- my largest investor in two thousand, whatever it was, uh, had a five percent Volkswagen position, oh. and and then he was gone. Right. And, and we used to refer to it as being Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. And now it's a much more appropriate name with hashtag GameStop. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> so, Even GameStop. Uh, but but right. it's the same thing. You, you, yeah. And if you can't maintain those positions, can you really add value? And if you can't add value, is there really a model that's viable for long short equity? And and I don't know. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I, I for what it's worth, I. I think the model uh, is going to be broken for a long time. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. I was coming into this call thinking, well, is this really something new and different? Is this really, uh, you know, a, a, a sea change in the way that firms will operate? Um, or is this, you know, something that just sort of uh, metastasized or it, it, it went from just a, some young-ish uh, traders sticking to, first just, you know, somebody had a good idea and spotted it. And then, you know, I think we, we have to talk about the, power of social media and you know what that has uh wrought and you know the ability now that, i mean we've all been to to idea dinners where hedge fund guys talk about their favorite ideas and they're not really acting in concert but they've shared information and they know that people like certain names and that's gone on for years and, and now we have you know six point we've got six million people in wall street bets as of today it's up you know 50 percent from two days ago whatever it was and you know, it's, maybe it's just the world's largest <laughs> idea buffet. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's it, it, I don't know what it is. But if, but if people were, if hedge funds were accused of colluding at idea dinners, which did happen during the right. insider trading, like you know, scandal that happened, mm-hmm. what is this? Right? Right. What is this? <laughs> Other than it happens in the light of the day. You know, when you when you set when you when you organize or, or first open a securities account. You not only have to go through the know your customer in and money laundering uh, hoops, but you actually have this investor suitability questionnaire that's got to be filled out. And um, I, I don't know how uh, Robinhood has proper, properly supervised investor suitability. Um, and of course, their defense, if I were them, their defense would be like, but what about these crypto guys like Coinbase? You don't even have investor suitability and those things move 25% a day all the time. Right. So I think our regulatory uh, structure and interface is broken. And I think they really need to think long and hard about investor suitability uh, permissions. And and, you you called it paternal a minute ago, Bruce, uh, or Bert, sorry. Uh, But but I think that there should be some base level of suitability that's brought into this equation. And, sure. and it's 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 wrong in both ends. It's almost too hard for the little guy to get into a lot of investments. And now, you know, so they're looking for things to do. They're kept out of, you know, they, they think it's, they're kept out of the club of Wall Street. And so now they're let into crypto where it's just absolutely a insane place to park your capital. Or mm-hmm. now this, this kind of mob chasing, short squeezing concept in Robinhood where you're looking at videos and they make it like a video game as opposed to investing your capital. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I, I think crypto is safer than GameStop, right? You have a, <laughs> at least you, sure. have, you have a digital tulip that actually is mathematically rigid. Uh, and, you know, the, the millennials believe that that scarcity equals value and, and, and even some of the, the old guard are, are believing that. And again, that the, there's no shareholder fiduciary, fiduciary rule that requires them to issue more because it's trading at 500 times NAV, 
right? Like something like a GameStop. The desktop gained 68% to close at $325. Sorry, that was uh, my <laughs> boomer letting me know where GameStop just closed. Uh, <laughs> it was up a cool 68%, up a cool 68% close at $325. It was up 400% this week. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in that, in these scenarios with broken companies uh, trading uh, so much higher in their in their values, these management teams have a fiduciary duty to issue as much stock as they possibly can. And so yeah. these things will revert back to some equilibrium that that is uh, rhymes with hero um, uh, or near or, or somewhere near there. Uh, and at least the the cryptos uh, still right. have this kind of go to the moon mentality, which by the way could still like. You know, if, we, if you and I woke up tomorrow and saw Bitcoin at 150,000, we'd say, well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. There it is. There that were more buyers than sellers anything else. And, right. uh, it worked. But, and, and, and if it goes back to zero, at least nobody's going to, it won't be anybody's fault, right? No. At least, it, whereas when GameStop goes back to something that rhymes with zero. Yeah. I lost you again. Get, get Elon test to get you another battery. You there? He's coming. Yeah, he's on the way. All right, I won't use my stupid headset again. <laughs> uh, but they, they will get mad when it goes away. And, 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 and this kind of goes to a point that, you know, I, and we talk about this occasionally on the podcast, uh, which is free markets and in general. And free speech and free capital markets, I see very much as in parallel. And I see them both being somewhat... I have to turn my Bloomberg off. I apologize. That's all right. right I, yeah, I, I shut down. One, oh, there we go. S&P down 1.9%. Yeah. The, the system is eating itself. This right. is what it looks like. Uh, but but the, you know, the, the free speech market has been dramatically curtailed over the last year. And you've seen controls get set in. And slowly you've been seeing the capital markets similarly, whether it's through the Fed setting interest rates and controlling, boosting capital markets, propping up the stock market, doing QE, doing whatever you call this current thing phase that we're in, buying tens of trillions of dollars to artificially make everybody think the equity markets look perfect. Uh, the, the question is now, you know, people are getting fed up and they're getting fed up in free speech and you're seeing protests. And this is kind of the clue. This is like the Washington protest in the stock market. Damn the system. We're going to run you guys over and ruin it because because we're tired of you telling us that we don't get to play or what we have to do or what right. we have to believe. And we're all losing a sense of truth. We're losing a sense of what is reality. We're losing kind of faith in the spoken word as delivered through media. And we're living, losing faith in prices as well, delivered through the capital right. market. That's what I wanted to ask, Kyle. Is it, do you see this as an extension of the, 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 an overall sense that price discovery in the markets has given way, at least in part, to something else? I mean, maybe people like owning, a, owning Tesla because they're altruistic. Um, or maybe they're buying GameStop to stick it to Melvin Capital, but there's there just seems like there's there are more motivations at work uh, in the market, uh, at least that I've seen in my career, you know, that that don't appear to be motivated by you know, price discovery or and or in some fundamental uh, sense. So I don't know what 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 do you think? Yeah, I think John uh, John hit on this just a second ago uh, with his comments about the. This, this group of people being similar to the protesters on, uh, on the Capitol on January 6th. I think that, look, we all know that with the advent of social media 
and what's happened in the evolution of time is we, we do today live in, in what I call a post-truth world. Like we, we're, not in a, we're not in a world where, where the editors at uh, the New York Times or the editors at the Wall Street Journal control, uh, the editors in 60 Minutes control any narratives anymore. The narratives are told by the best narrative tellers and the groups of like-minded people that can, that can virtually uh, uh, come together like they do on this Reddit forum um, end up having a, such a large collective voice. And whatever narrative the strongest orator uh, can tell in that group becomes the truth. And then you say, it's like ipse dixit, right? The, the Latin term, if you say it, you say it enough, it's true. Uh, and I think that in this world, in a post-truth world, um, we have empowered um, not only uh, groups of people within our, within our sovereign boundaries uh, to be able to distort uh, the truth, distort the narratives, and distort the stock market, uh, for, uh, let's just say completely disconnect from, as you say, price discovery, or let's just say true value. Um, it, it also opens up our country and our people uh, in the country to misinformation from foreign actors. And, and I know uh, we've spent a lot of time uh, together talking about China. You know, China fans these flames more than Russia does. So I think, I think that, that this is, all of it together collectively is just not good. Mm -hmm. And being, living in a post-truth world opens us up to so much risk that it's um yeah it's 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 a very everyone, effective everyone, go ahead it's a very effective weapon for a foreign yeah. regime like if you're china you go look why do i have to attack them let's just let them eat each other right well, all i have no. to do is break up no, let's, let's let's actually let's actually uh stir the pot kick the hornet's nest and uh pour some honey in all at the same time and see what happens to the dumb Americans. So we can tell stories here. We're, we're the best in the world at lying, cheating, and stealing. Let's figure out how to put together a media blitz that you probably saw. There were 180,000 Twitter accounts that were all critical of President Trump. Now, again, I'm not saying which side of the political aisle uh, anyone needs to be on, but let's just say the moment the, the George Floyd killing happened, um, all 180,000 of them started propagating BLM and they were all Chinese. So I think- really? I, haven't, I haven't even heard that. That's I, believe, I believe that there needs to be racial equality in the United States. I think we all do. We all, we all buy into the, uh, to the, to the enormous gaps in wealth, yeah. inequality, and racial equality, and gender equality. I mean, I'll yeah, be the first person yeah, to tell yeah, you I'm, I'm for all of those things, but- when China starts fanning the flames of BLM before BLM did, um, it's a scary thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and driving real violence and protests. And, and it, it's not, we have a free and open society. So whether it's in the capital markets and with social media and open society and open capital markets, which they don't have, right? We couldn't go to China and create the same chaos there. They could, I'm not saying they are, but they certainly could mm -hmm. here, whether it's run a stock price or get on social media and, and you can create that mob. Right. right. You know, look, they, they have an information ministry that they spend more than $4 billion a year on. You know, I, I've said this in, in other uh, public forums, but there, the four wars we can be fighting with China, uh, a kinetic war, which thank God we're not, where we have the best war department in the world, a cyber war, 
which we've been fighting with China since at least the year 2000, if not earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and arguably, we have top two war departments in the world there. Um, an economic war, which they've been fighting with us since 2001, since we let them ascend the WTO. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we don't have an economic war department. We deal with everything China throw to, throws at us in economics, like uh, fly balls. Sometimes it's commerce. Sometimes it's trade. Sometimes it's the National Security Council. Sometimes it's state. Sometimes it's the treasury. Like again, sometimes it's the private market that we just hope wins, right? Yeah, we don't have an economic war department, and we should. And the other one is I call it information slash data war, right? Separate from cyber, which is is different. Uh, But in the in the narrative slash data war, they have a war department. We don't. Uh, And so those two wars are actually where World War III is being fought. And um, we, we better get with the program. You know, we've, we've started to realize their malign intent in everything they do around the world. Uh, but now we need to start standing up these war departments. And I know that sounds like a, a warmonger, but I'll tell you that, that that's where the real risk is here, that, that China, uh, uh, again, jumps into these... Uh, you're, not even ta- you're not talking about playing offense. You're talking about a Department of Defense. That's right. So to counter their intelligence operation. Propaganda and... And these things, like so, Kyle. The first I first became familiar with your work. Um, I guess it was around 2002, 2003. I was doing some work, um, actually, for our mutual friend Mark Yusko. I was doing some work on China for for Mark, and uh, and you know became familiar with with your efforts in there. Talk, just give us a little bit of background about you know your um, you know your history of 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 learning and and focusing on that region and how your position and views may have evolved over that time. Yeah, it's just, um, it, it, it actually emanated from the bottom up. It was just uh, intellectual curiosity, trying to understand when the financial crisis happened in the United States, um, you know, a lot of bad private assets ended up on public balance sheets, right, with the government uh, backstopping everything. Um, and so that, that moved us immediately to focus on not only on, on balance sheet sovereign obligations, but contingent liabilities. So we looked at the size of banking systems in relation to GDP, which I know today a lot of people are very familiar with. I can tell you back in 2007 and 8, nobody was familiar with this concept. And so we just kind of got out of, uh, we had a lot of white space and a whiteboard and said, okay, what does the U.S. look like? What does Europe look like? And how many times have you read sovereign analyses that say ex-Japan? Let's understand why Japan blows every bell curve in the world. And so we, 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 we actually just followed those bad private assets to public balance sheets. And in Europe, if you remember, when their crisis erupted in, in really 2011 is when it came to a boil, um, but it was 20, 2009, 10, 11. Um, it, we had developed, I'll give you this, this is a great, great, great anecdote. Um, we did this work, it took six months in 2007 in its early 08. And um, it, was, it was ready in, in mid 2008. And I reached out to Professor Rogoff at Harvard who had not written his book yet. Uh-huh. Uh, this time it's different, 800 years of financial folly or crises. Um, but he was known, he and Carmen Reinhardt were known as the two sovereign balance sheet uh, uh, watchdogs. Sensei. Mm-hmm. So I flew to, flew to Boston, I went to Harvard, and I sat with Professor Rogoff to share with him our work because I canvassed every Wall Street firm to ask them, talk, talk to me about how host countries' banking systems are in size to on balance sheet liabilities. And let's talk about um, how toxic those balance sheet assets are in the banks. And of course, nobody had it. So we, we kind of built it uh, and went and sat with Professor Rogoff. And 
he sat back in his chair when I showed him the chart we had developed. And he said, my God, I can hardly believe it's that bad. And I'm thinking, oh God, you know, you know, the, <laughs> now we know Trichet is not focused on this. We know uh, Bernanke uh, isn't that, isn't quite that focused here. And so it was one of those moments where I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have had that meeting because I, you know, wanted to slip my wrist and jump out the window. But I think that from there, we followed it to Japan and then from Japan to China. And um, that was literally, um, you know, more than 10 years ago. Uh, and so we studied Japan's financial system, banking system, and, and sovereign debt situation uh, and their population demographics. And then we moved into China. And so I've been studying China's banking system as well as one can from the West for over a decade. And um, it, once you dive in and, and go down through their rabbit hole, you try to understand how a closed capital account can be the second largest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, then you realize that there are a lot of smoke and mirrors and lies and deceit and malign activities. And then it's it like a rabbit hole into a fun house. <laughs> yeah. And then it just starts to boil your blood as, as an American um, who, you know, our ancestors fought to get us where we are. And um, I think we run the, the greatest economy in the world. Uh, we're the most open uh, and we're the, we have the most innovative uh, school system in the world. We have, the, we have the best labs. We have the best people. We have the greatest entrepreneurs in the world. The, the, the largest tech companies in the world, largest banks in the world, all used to be ours. And now somehow uh, China has supplanted that uh, with a whole bunch of smoke and mirrors. But looking at China, understanding the manner in which they act, reading all the history books about China was just kind of a, an intellectual passion for me. And now it's become, uh, you know, some people will call me xenophobic and I would just call me a realist. Mm -hmm. look, look at what they're doing to us. They meaning the Chinese Communist Party. And they only have one goal and mm -hmm. they work on it all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, we kind of try to deal with it on, a, on an ad hoc basis. And the good news is, is now, uh, again, whether it's Democrat or Republican, I think everyone's come to understand that China is the enemy. And you look at that Hong Kong Human Rights and, and Democracy Act, what has passed through the Senate and the House unanimously in the last four years? That's it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're starting to understand as a, as a country that we really need to be standing up for them. And I'm, I'm very glad that, that that's the case. Well, you, and, you and I think globally, globally we've also done that as well, right? It's not just us. It's Europe has even kind of come around, not fully, right? Japan is has come around. But I think even with Biden in office, I mean, do you think that changes? You were somewhat involved in the behind the scenes of the previous administration a little bit, right? Is there, is that going to change? I mean, obviously, Biden has ties to China, economic, direct economic ties to China. I don't know how much that's going to keep a spotlight on him from doing something wrong. But what do you think about the, the new versus the old? Yeah, um, you know, I, I was intimately familiar with um, several of the National Security Council members, with the State Department, with the Treasury. I know I, you know, I knew a lot of people in that administration, the previous administration. In this one, I know a few of the players. Um, and some of the players I haven't met, some of the key players. Uh, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing and seeing them, uh, hearing them say and seeing them do. You know, uh, I think the most important person in this, in this uh, mix is going to be Tony Blinken, the new Secretary of State. He has said, immediately he came in and said he agrees with Secretary Pompeo's 
assessment that China is committing crimes against humanity and genocide. I can't tell you how important that designation is from officially from the State Department. It requires our country to reassess our entire relationship with China. And you will see that in the days and weeks to come. Uh, and Blinken has said, we will never trade a human rights issue for a trade deal. That was a shot at Trump. Trump would never let Pompeo say what he said. That's why he said it on the last day. Pompeo said that without Trump's approval. Uh, Trump wanted to protect his precious trade deal mm -hmm. and would never call the spade the spade or call the Chinese government the genocidal killer uh, that it is. And finally, Pompeo, uh, fin he just finally said it on his way out the door. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it was very effective. And I can't tell you how important that was for him to say that. So I think Tony Blinken is going to be a vital, he's going to be vitally important to kind of what happens in this administration. Uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, was, as you know, an advisor to Hillary in the State Department under Obama. Uh, and the Obama State Department was not uh, the greatest State Department in the world and uh, prostrated our country, hugged the panda and hoped they were going to uh, democratize and, and um, institutionalize and open their capital markets. And we all know what happened. They went the other way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Kurt Campbell's a friend of mine. Uh, Kurt was the Deputy Secretary of State for Asia under Hillary. He's now the head of the National Security Council for China uh, in the Biden administration. And I hope Kurt has learned his lesson uh, with being too close to China and how China acted. I've, I've seen the evolution of Kurt Campbell over the last, call it five or six years. Hopefully um, he's able to see them for who they are. Now. I think we we're just all a little bit naive back then, right? I mean, the idea was, you know, if we do business with them, you know, we're not going to go to war with our customers. And, you know, we have a lot of, uh, there was a lot to be gained potentially there. So, um, I, I mean, that, that was just the dominant narrative. And I think, uh, I think, Perhaps what played out was we just enriched, you know, the very people that we didn't want to enrich in China, then they became more probably more entrenched. And now we have a more formidable um, foe um, in that region. Yeah, I mean, at, at one point in time, the pension fund of the U.S. military was investing in Chinese military companies that were building the aircraft carriers and the surveillance systems to fight us. <laughs> right. That's that's how crazy things got. And that's unfortunate. I I, I, I had a lot to I, I was I was an active member of the group that pushed back so hard against that pension fund uh, buying the companies that support China's military. Um, and you know something scary just happened. That that was the, the the Pentagon released a list of fifty companies that are Chinese military PLA uh, connected or ranked companies. And uh, we just saw the new administration suspend that rule. Oh, they did. Uh, uh, suspended it yesterday. It was supposed to go into effect today. Uh, they suspended it till the month of May. So let's hope that they're suspending it to make the list larger, more companies, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and more difficult. Uh, the jury will be out. The opposite. Right? So, so what do you think? I, I've said the, the black swan this year was going to be GameStop. Wait, no, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't. I said it was going to be uh, China invading Taiwan. And it's probably not even a black swan. It's barely even a gray swan. But, you know, they keep invading the airspace. If I'm them and I want to do that, I take advantage of the chaos and I, you know, try and take the asset. But I don't know. How do you think China plays out this year? 
Yeah, I mean, if if I were China, uh, I just took I just took Hong Kong, and you probably saw last night. Um, you know, the British opened a uh, an amnesty program, or let's say a a, a naturalization program, to uh, British passport holders in in Hong Kong that existed pre to the 1990s, the 1997 handoff, uh, and um, they their system crashed because there were so many. Hong Kongers applying for um, citizenship in, in the UK, that the system went down. Um, they finally registered 400,000. They believe there are many more, but just think about 400,000 out of a population of roughly seven, seven and a half million. That's a real number. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those are probably, there's probably a little bit of, uh, uh, say, positive selection for Britain, negative selection for China. Those are the wealthy ones that can afford to just pick up and leave and go buy things in London. There, there are the poor Hong Kongers that have been left behind that, that can't leave. Uh, but China just said they're not going to recognize those British passports this morning, mm-hmm. and that leaving could be seen as an act of sedition. So you just went from one of the uh, best uh, uh, democracies in the world to holy shit, you might not be able to get out. Mm-hmm. Right. You and couldn't really, even escape on a boat to Taiwan. They stopped you a few weeks ago from doing that, right? It, like, no, look, no real country has to wall its citizens in or its capital in. So the, the world's going to figure out that a closed capital account, an autocratic, dictatorial, genocidal government is probably a bad thing. And as soon as we start really understanding them for who they are, I actually think our systems are fundamentally incompatible. Uh, and if that's the case, then your question about Taiwan, I would, I would move on Taiwan today. And by the way, they're thinking, oh, well, you need a military incursion and the bombers and fighters are going to roll across the Taiwan Strait and, and bomb the hell out of Taiwan. Guys, they're like, they're handfuls of flights that land, commercial flights that land from mainland China to Taiwan every day. And it's the t- Chinese uh, Customs and Border Patrol that, that decide what gets on those planes. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, how hard would that be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just you just fly it, fly a few battalions of military in there, and you you win. And yeah, you just walk in and you, you walk in and say the airport. The, the airport's going to be ours, and um, and then you start from there. Oh, and by the way, what is the U.S. going to do in that scenario? That's I I, I end up with nothing. We did we did nothing in Hong Kong. Nothing. Now until we barely until we even passed a bill with a tooth in it, much we, less. You know, what we've got to do is we have to cut the blood flow off to the tumor. All we have to do is stop. Uh, you know, uh, Burke said earlier, we did, they did it with our money. Um, mm-hmm. All we have to do is stop the huge flow of our money, our blood into their tumor. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, China overnight has a schism that they don't have a plan B for. Yeah. Um, so, well, you we, and I both know that their financial system is super fragile. It is massively leveraged. It's incredibly intertwined between fake wealth management products, real estate, and financial institutions, as well as now individual capital. And all all you need is one thing to break, whether it's Evergrande or whether it's something else. And I think that house is going to show to be a house of cards very quickly. Yeah, I believe I believe that China can can control their in their RMB based economy internally and their RMB based stock markets, I think they can control that uh, with, with, a, with a relative amount of precision. I think when every single transaction that they do 
around the world, they have to settle in dollars, euros, yen, or pounds, but call it 90% dollars. If we stop the flow of dollars in, it becomes a, it literally, uh, it's a shutdown movement for them mm -hmm. overnight. It's almost like using RICO uh, to freeze the accounts of, of the criminals. Um, shutting off the dollars to China would immediately throw China into a tailspin. Now, I know we'll get some questions about what that might do to uh, into interest rates over here um, that could then have negative effects on, on our economy. What are your, do you think that that effect would, would A, come to pass and be, be as large as people believe it might be? Or, or is, it, is it possible that they don't really even, even have those dollars anymore? Yeah, I mean, look, they, they have been a net seller of our treasuries for a long time. They own less than a trillion of our treasuries now. I mean, if you put a trillion of short-term treasuries out for bid in a week's time, our market would move 25 basis points. We'd swallow it. We move on. This, this, this kind of scaremongering that they do, oh, they'll sell our treasuries and mm -hmm. teach us a lesson. They sell our treasuries, then what? Right. <laughs> I mean, they, then they don't, have, they don't have anywhere to go after that. So again, we just need someone in our financial architecture to understand that Ch all China does is bluff. And all China does is use their malign intent to suck dollars out of our system. And, and the, the, they're not we, coming from a position of strength like we all think they are. They, mm -hmm. they are as weak as they can possibly be uh, financially. And we, as the day we realize that, we end up controlling that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what does it, what does it take? So levered, so yeah. scary everywhere else that, it, you know, I, I keep saying when, when people say, what is, you know, what are you short? Why don't you short something? Why don't you restart a short fund? And I'm like, because that's not the way this plays out, right? These central banks are never going to stop printing money. And actually your hedge is being long equities at some level because that's your protection against inflation. Mm -hmm. And the thing to watch is the 10-year rate or the 210 or the steepness of the curve or something else. And, and so that's kind of where I am from a macro sentiment. Like we're printing, we're going to print another couple trillion as if you can say that word now casually, uh, for this pandemic, which is basically over at some point in time, I think it's going to show up and I think we're in the Weimar Republic and it's 1921 or late 1920s. Uh, what, what do you think? What do you think the macro plays out as? So I'd agree with everything you just said, except for your conclusion there at the end about Weimar. And, and here's why, I mean, are we engaging in MMT? Yes, we are. We're already running into the trillion dollar deficit. We just the, think about this. More than 20% of the money supply in the U.S. system that's in there today didn't exist a year ago. <laughs> right? That is unbelievable. Uh, it's unprecedented, unbelievable, all of, those, all of those crazy words. But I think that we are, um, we are the global hegemonic uh, currency. Germany had just gotten their, they had just lost a, um, a war. And, and, and with the armistice of World War One being just before Weimar Germany happened, mm -hmm. what happens, right? What, what happens uh, almost every time uh, between when there's conflict, uh, both sides deficit spend going into a war to build the war machine, and to the winner go go the go the fruits uh, of victory, and to the loser goes defeat and default. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what happened to Germany. They couldn't repay their war debts. They Got the printing press out, and they went and they went they went bust in 1923. And one could say that that kind of wipeout of the savings of the middle class of Germany um, was somewhat responsible for the rise of Hitler. 
Um, and so the same thing happened going into World War II. Uh, you know, that was, we deficit spent going into World War II, so did Germany. Um, and, you know, we, we actually took our debt up to 106% of GDP in 1946, and we won. Mm-hmm. Now, we won, and we also ruined the productive capacity of, of a couple of continents. Mm-hmm. So in the end, in 1946, we had a trade surplus with every single trading partner we had. We were rebuilding two continents. And no wonder we could pay our debts down from 106 down to uh, where we got them, where we got it down to in the 70s. So I would say, John, when you say we're Weimar, I would say that um, more than 80% of global transactions settle in dollars. And we are still uh, the hegemonic uh, military power of the world. And we can still, what, Germ- what, what um, Japan has taught us is we can buy our own bonds. Now we are printing money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody knows it, but we pretend that we have this separate treasury and fed and they don't talk to each other, but they talk to each other every week. Um, and they're really just the same thing. It's just optics. So uh, I don't think that you're going to see runaway inflation. You know, moving the, the minimum wage up from 14 or from 720 to $15 is going to create $14 Big Macs. Like we all know that's coming, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's somewhat of a regressive tax. Um, so it's something that maybe I wouldn't have done, but we're going to see run of the mill inflation, especially now that we've printed so much money and we will get to a herd immunity, I believe sometime in the middle of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John, we will never let our tenure move north of one and a half percent, one and a half to two. We'll pin it just like we did in the 50s. Remember, we pinned our rates you know, I, and, I, and, and, I, we ran, I, and we ran it hot for a while. We ran 6% plus inflation uh, back in the good old days and we had, the, we had our rates pegged. That will happen again. So to your point, your answer is correct. You need to own stocks, you need to own land, you need to own anything that's nailed down that's productive in our economy. Will Bitcoin go up? I mean, who knows? Um, it'll trade higher if all the if all the billionaire techies buy it and, and uh, people think it's a, it's a great uh, hedge. I'd rather own something that I can go visit and, um, you know, maybe maybe um, build something on and, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, and offer some fixed leverage to. Um, so your 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 prognosis uh, is correct. Uh, and I, I agree with you. I, I think that the risk to your out the thing I think you need to watch as a viewer of the global system to see if it's going to turn out the way you just said are interest rates. Like if for some reason they lose control, then I, I, I agree with you as to the way it plays out completely. I'm just saying the risk is that you get runaway inflation at the, and that they lose control. I think that it plays out and I think what they're doing brilliantly and you I'm sure have an opinion on this is they're doing it in conjunction with the other central banks. We've got the Fed and we've got the ECB and they're all printing and they're all buying their own bonds and with the BOJ and frankly the Bank of China. And so maybe there's a great reset and they all delete the money they owe themselves at the same time at some point in the future. And we all just go, what happened? And then we're like, oh, well, it's Tuesday. I got to go to work. And we forget <laughs> that they just deleted $25 trillion in debt to themselves. So yeah. so I don't know if they'll ever delete it. I think they may keep growing it. And there's, there are a few dynamics here that, that I think uh, need, to be, need to be deeply considered. And you know, I studied Japan at length. We had a Japan fund. Uh, here at our firm for a few years, and um, 
and thankfully did very well there. But I think when you look at Japan, I had the, the good fortune to meet with Shirakawa-san after he was the BOJ governor and also met with Kuroda-san. And I'll give you a couple anecdotes from those meetings. Um, when I was with Shirakawa, first of all, the funny thing is I was, I was, when we had our fund, I had two positions. I was buying swaptions on their interest rates, just in case, basically the scenario you just said, in case they lose control and, and hyperinflate, um, you know, I could buy trillions of dollars of those things for nothing from Japanese propeller heads, you know, that were using Black-Scholes models. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of it was two thirds of the money uh, we were betting with the Bank of Japan on the Japanese yen weakening. Uh, if you remember during uh, uh, basically Abenomics introduction, their goal was to generate 2% inflation. Now they never got there, but to do so, they were gonna have to devalue the, the yen by about 25%. So we had a very hyper leveraged structure to yen weakening. So in that scenario, in studying the Japanese market, meeting with Shirakawa, I said, you know, you guys print money uh, for the national, as it's the national pastime in Japan, and you're 10 years ahead of us. um, And now the rest of the world is joining you. You know, why isn't the world going to let go? And, And he said, well, the only thing that's effective from a central bank policy uh, is if you, if we are printing more, substantially more than everyone else, it will have an effect on our markets in Japan. If everyone's printing the same or roughly the same right. amount of money, <laughs> then it just doesn't matter. The price of goods and services in your host country will move up in, in nominal terms, but you, your cross-currency mm-hmm. rates will never change. And then when I met with, with um, Kuroda-san, um, you know, if you've never met him, he's like this very funny man uh, with a deep gutty uh, a guttural laugh and uh, he's, he's, a, he's a pleasure to be around but I said you know you guys own more than a hundred percent of GDP of your outstanding bonds you own one of every two bonds that, that you've ever issued and you claim to not be monetizing your debt so what exactly do you call it and he said oh Kyle we're only monetizing our debt if the market tells us we're monetizing our debt there's the answer right and so you think about i I guess what i'm telling you john is i think we have a long way to run and and here's why do you know what percentage of listed etfs in japan the bank of japan owns is it 40 or 50 or more 82 82 (laughs) they 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 have created etfs that the boj and central banks around the world have a real problem if and when they go to buying stocks. And here, you know, the problem is governance, right? You can't vote, they can't get into uh, um, proxy contests. They can't vote for or against management of these companies that they became that they become very large shareholders of. So they need a prophylactic. So the prophylactic are ETFs. So they, they launch these market-based ETFs and then they buy the living shit out of their ETFs. So the Japanese government owns 82% of every ETF ever listed in Japan. They're a top five holder of 10 of the largest companies in Japan. And wow. yet, guess what? Their currency hasn't come unhinged and their rates haven't moved yet. So while I'm telling you is, if you're thoughtful about how you manage this charade, you have a long way to run. We don't even own stocks yet, John. <laughs> At some point in time, the Fed's gonna buy stocks. At some point in time, we'll go to negative rates. 
And if you really look at negative rates, if you look at the sovereign balance sheet of Japan, if you own more than half of your debt and your debt trades at a negative rate, what is your interest expense? Hmm. Uh, your, your debt actually self amortizes. I, I, my head exploded for a second. <laughs> right. trying to figure that me, out. I wasn't sure which me I was talking about. It's actually unbelievable to watch. You can see it happen. So their interest expense disappears the more bonds they buy. Right. <laughs> right. Of course it does. So again, it's this phenomenon. Now, what are, well, what wait, is so, 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 Kyle, hang on. Let's all not trust the financial system. So, so if we're if we're going to if, if we can get to five percent rates in this country, like we had back in in uh, well many years ago, but specifically referencing the fifties, are we going to go through negative rates before we get there, or, or or did I misunderstand you earlier when you were talking about where you thought we might go with rates? Oh no, so Burke, we will never be at five percent rates again unless we have the jubilee. Like it mm-hmm. won't never we've happen. lost control. The system's mm-hmm. over at five percent mm-hmm. rates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we we it'll never happen. So right. I, and I mean I I mean never in its current state, meaning that if we have the on balance sheet right. sovereign debt that we have today, uh it'll never get right. We, that's, we, that's, we, that's right. You were saying inflation would run ahead of of uh where rates were where yeah, so if rates were pinned, right. We'll have massively negative real rates. Mm-hmm. That's the way you think about right. it. Right. Um and so, so it's, it's, I think when you look at, at again, where we're headed, I, th- I actually think we'll get to negative rates here in the U.S. in the next whatever recession we have. Again, I'm not predicting a recession. I'm just saying when that happens, we'll have to go to negative the, rates. The next, the next move is the economy. The real economy accelerates with herd immunity and vaccines. And you Correct. see real inflation show and, up. And we run it hot. And then what happens to rates then? That's really the question. You think one and a half on the 10 year, like- One and a half to two. I mean, we can't afford over two. The short rates can't move. Can't let them move. So we allow a little steepness in the curve. We do a little, what they call in central bank circles, yield curve control, Uh, but we're not letting it, we're not gonna let it move from there. Um, And so in that environment, again, what John said is gonna prove to be prescient. You need to own stocks. You need to own assets. You need to be, again, the unintended consequence of the central banks acting as God is what we're seeing now in our, in our, in the social fabric of our country ripping the Mm -hmm. wealthy, the wealthy get wealthier. The middle class can't afford to reach to their next house. They can't move up and the poor stay poor. And so what happens? You have, you have social discourse. You have, you have a tearing in the social fabric of our country, which starts to look a little bit like a civil war. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation is what is really happening with the millennial horde uh, buying a broke retailer, teaching the short sellers a lesson. Uh, well, right. it's, gonna be, it's gonna be a Pyrrhic victory for many because they're gonna get wiped out in the process, but they're gonna have really stuck it to the man. That's right. And, um, That's right. In the, There'll in be the statues of, of a deep effing value all over the all over the land. <laughs> yeah. So in the future, um, I just think we need to be wary of of the social fabric of our country and and actually pay a lot more attention to it. It's something that we really haven't had to pay attention to in the past, uh, but now we're going to have to pay a lot more attention to it. I think you're going to see the problem, a the lot problem, more of it. The, the problem with it tearing is that we keep handing more and more responsibility for fixing it and everything else to the same people that are breaking it. 
And so their solution that is fixing it is to print more money and hand out more money and buy more debt and control more markets, which causes more inflation. And so we're in this terrible, it's far from a virtuous cycle of, of doing this. You're handing people more worthless assets and printing them and quelling free speech and centralizing more things and going more totalitarian in many ways uh, in an effort to solve a problem that's very real that you created to begin with. Yeah, and so the, the, the irony of the situation is so thick that you just pointed out. The one institution, we, we have tasked the one institution in the, in the United States uh, to, to guard against inflation is it happens to be the only institution in the United States that can actually cause it. <laughs> right. I mean, the inmate completely runs the asylum and um, you know, who knows where that goes. I, when I, I, I had breakfast with Bernanke uh, maybe a few weeks after he stepped down as, as chair of the Fed and I asked him, I said, what, what's the one thing you really wish you did but didn't get done? And he said, well, I had the opportunity to take our uh, inflation um, expectations, inflation target to 3% from two and I should have. Great. Well, I'm glad he missed that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now we've just wiped him out, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's so depressing. Give us something happy, Kyle. Give me, give me, give me some good humor. Uh, funniest, uh, funniest story you're working on. What do you got? Stocks or otherwise. Couldn't matter. The funniest. I don't. I don't know, John. I don't know where to go with the funniest at the moment. Um, <laughs> But this whole situation is somewhat, you know, theater to all of us, right? It's uh, I, 2020 seems like so long ago now. I mean, here we are. In, <laughs> well, we, we made a movie about a short seller, you know, four years ago. That was the that was actual theater. Now we maybe have to make another one. That was that was awesome. And now, you know, like Andrew left, closed up shop, and yeah. quit. Uh, I, I said, isn't that like I thought when I shut Anti, I was like, oh, of course I called the top. I finally shut the. Short fun, no. Andrew left turning Citron into a promoting small cap longs. I was like, I read that and thought, oh God. Well, <laughs> S&P down 2% on the, that day. He sees the writing on the wall and he sees the, uh, the opportunity set given the, the amount of money that's in the system. By the way, we're going to print another, as you say, one to two trillion at least this year. And that will end, it, that will end up trickling down into the stock market one way or the other. So- uh, there's going to be so much money in the market. Um, you just need your market investments uh, to generate higher IRRs than inflation. And you know, historically, when you look at that, in periods of, in periods of high inflation, the market keeps up with about 80% of the inflation. Um, so it, it is a pretty, it's a decent hedge. It's not a perfect hedge. Um, you need to think about other assets that you can actually have long-term uh, cheap leverage on uh, that you can really outperform that, and of course that means the billionaires of the world will make more and more than than uh, than anyone else. And so again, it goes back to this concept that we need to pay attention a lot more attention to mm -hmm. uh, the social fabric, and uh, those arguments are going to continue to run. And you know, here we have we have uh, AOC. I've never met her, uh, and I don't mean to make this a partisan comment, but when you have a you have essentially a former bartender telling you that they're going to hold hearings about uh, the net capital requirements of advanced brokerage firms. You know, we need to be really careful. 
with things like that. Uh, and maybe she needs to ask the head of the committee, Maxine Waters, what she thinks about it. But I think we're going to have a lot of theater going forward uh, with things that people really don't understand uh, in their in their kind of totality. And by the way, we're in a post-truth world. So whatever narrative they want to tell, they're going to right. tell it. And so I just think we need to be super careful about what we say, what we do, what we engage in. Um, we've been really candid on this podcast, but uh, going <laughs> forward, nobody listens to it. You're good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but going going forward, uh, we're we're in a new world. Yeah. No, it's very it's very true, and that and that part's scary. And I can't come up with a fix. We keep saying, you know, uh, Joe Rogan talks about the truth for bad speech is more speech. I, I guess, I don't know, you know, I read about the Europeans and the salon concept, like only the real educated and kind of experts were allowed to give public opinions. Like hmm. most of the people giving opinions today aren't trained. They aren't really qualified to be giving their opinion. And right. yet back to the social media control thing, right. the narrative. This is to your post-truth concept. I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know if anybody's thrown one out there. I'm going to give you the shot. What's your answer? How, how, <laughs> how do we fix either the free speech, the free markets, or or the post-truth world? You got anything for us? In, 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 I mean, look. First of all, the free markets have been the free markets. This is just this is just idiocy run amok, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we're we're seeing free markets, and for what it's worth, I mean, uh, there is a little theater, and, and I kind of enjoy seeing what's going on as long as I'm not the one getting run over with an 18 wheeler. <laughs> right. Um, I'm, I'm in either pretty, lane, right? I'm excited. I, I I like seeing what's going on. So that I, I mean, I learn. I've learned a lot from this, and thank God I didn't lose any uh, in in this. You know, um, I normally only uh, win or uh, learn by losing. Uh, but in this case, I think um, the when you say you know what's your what's your takeaway, uh, you know, social media is going to dominate our world going forward be wary of state actors posing as Americans, right? And we as investors uh, and fiduciaries, which John, you're, you know, you're create, you're doing something new that we're probably not allowed to talk about here at, at length, but, um, you know, investing in human innovation, great idea. Being right. long human innovation right now, I think uh, in, in both private and in a public way, but in private, uh, it's uh, you can you can control the price a little more in public. You know, price sensitivity is flown out the window, as Burke as Burke mentioned. Um, so I think doing kind of doing that, investing in human innovation is probably the best thing you can do. Secondarily, you need to invest in productive assets, and some of those are are multinational stocks, and some aren't. Some are apartments, and some are um, even rangeland and ranch land, and all these other things that you can buy. Uh, I think those are great, great hedges for, for what's, what's to come. Awesome. I, I know you've done a lot of work in innovation. Uh, we're we're going to have to have you back on here sometime to talk about, you know, the stuff that you've done in the past in terms of, you know, patents and things like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, uh, there's a lot to, uh, a, a lot to unpack as I hate that millennial saying more than any other, I think is, Oh, we got to unpack that. Can you unpack that for me? But, we've but there's too much to unpack for one episode. <laughs> what's that? We've only scratched the surface of the best. We will have yeah. to do We'll have to do it again, but uh, oh, we just what we need the millennials to do is kind of move out from their parents' house <laughs> and pack, right? And start to work. That's and, right. And realize unpack that, somewhere else. That there's, a, that there's a real, there actually is a, a real truth and a real world out there. That right. Right. Is it isn't in their isn't in their chat room? Right. Well, listen. Um, 
you've been more generous with your time. Let's um let's wrap it up. But uh, please come back. This has been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thanks so, for joining. Great to have you on. And it's fun to sit with old friends. Absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks, Kyle. Hopefully right. we can do it again. Have a great weekend. You See too. you, Bert. Right. See you Good. guys. Bye, Bert. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bidding on Zero podcast. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bert Kuntz, John Pickmore, or anyone else are not necessarily Mr. Raymond James. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be correct. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making investment decisions is not constitute a recommendation. Bert Kuntz is a financial advisor, Raymond James Associates Incorporated, member of New York Stock Exchange, member of SIPC.